0: Let's pray and we will jump into the scriptures this morning. Father God, we uh, are excited to be here to uh, spend some time together, spend some time in, in your word, Lord, and we pray that you would open the scriptures to us this morning, prepare our hearts and minds to hear from you. God, we pray that, uh, that you would use these things to challenge us and to shape us and to grow us, and uh, God, we pray that the words we hear today would... Uh, be words that can stick with us, that they would be ready at hand when we need them, God. And so, um, God, we just pray over this morning, and we pray uh, to have a real sense of your presence here with us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hallelujah. <laughs> All righty. So we are in First Samuel chapter 8, and this is really where we start. I know it's been, you know, what, now eight or, you know, yeah, eight weeks of Of the book, but now we're really starting to get into the actual story of 1 Samuel. So it's really going to start to get into its own here. Not that the stuff that we haven't seen, that we've seen so far, hasn't been, you know, edifying and important and interesting, but it's all kind of been groundwork for um, this beginning of the monarchy in Israel. Because that's really, historically, that's the function that this book serves in the Bible, is to tell us how Israel came to be a monarchy, how there came to be a king in Israel. And so what we're going to see today is really a step in that direction, where Israel, God's people, are going to call for the king, for a king in Israel. So we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, we're going to start right in uh, verse 4, because we covered the first three verses uh, last week as part of chapter 7. So starting in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done... From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So really what you have here at the beginning is, is a vote of no confidence in Samuel as judge and uh, and especially of his of his kids by the elders of Israel. So first phrase there, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And so the elders here are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it would be um, you know the, the term "elder" actually comes from being the oldest person in the group. Now, whether or not they were the oldest person in the group is, you know, not necessarily something that we know historically, and definitely not biblically. But the elders would just refer to who's the leader, who's the you know wise, venerated man who is kind of seen as chief over that tribe. And uh, and it's not necessarily an official office. It's never spelled out in the law. It's never mentioned in any um, historical sources that we can see, and any you know requirements for elders. Um, even though we have those now in the New Testament, but a different sense of the word "elder," I guess. Um, but uh, but these are just basically representatives from the twelve tribes, and they gather together at Ramah. And you remember last week we talked about Samuel's prophetic ministry and how he's a circuit rider. So he's moving from these different towns, and they're all really pretty close together in the um, in the tribe, uh, the tribal territory of Ephraim. And so he's traveling around, but his base of operations and his hometown is at Ramah, and so that's where his. Family family is. That's where he uh, has lived, and that's kind of where he sets up shop, but he splits his time among these four different cities, and so the elders come to meet him there at his base of operations, and it's to confront him, and it says, they said to him, behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways, which I just love the phrasing of that. Behold, you are old. (laughs) Um, Say that to my dad a lot, yeah. Behold, father, you are old. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So, first thing is that the word behold, we have a tendency to spiritualize that, like, behold, stand in awe, look upon, it just means, look, you're old, like, (laughs) check it out, you're old, that's what the word means, it's hine, H-I-N-E, and it um, is used a lot in the Bible, and basically, whenever you read hine, or you read behold, it's just meant to say, look at this, pay attention, this is the something that I'm trying to tell you. This is something that I'm trying to show you. And so don't read too much into that. But basically, they're just saying, look, man, you're getting old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Your sons are wicked. They're not, uh, they're not cut out to be the kind of judges that you've been. Uh, and remember, last week we saw how Samuel has these two sons, Joel and Abijah, and uh, they're both judges in Beersheva, which is the furthest south city in the in the country, in the territory of Israel at that time. And so it's almost like Samuel has sent his two knucklehead sons as far away as he can get them in order that maybe they don't reflect poorly on him or that he doesn't have to deal with them. He's kind of, you know, shirking the responsibility that he had as judge to raise them up and to take care of them by shipping them off to the farthest south city that he could get them to. Um, and then also remember that they're noted as being corrupt, that they took bribes and they perverted justice is what it says in the, in the last or at the beginning of the chapter. And so we don't have details precisely on what the sins are, except that they took bribes. Uh, but we do know that what seems to be happening here is just the general sin of leveraging their per, their positions for personal gain. So they're, they're perverting the call that they have to be judges in order to sort of feed themselves, to, to, you know, line their pockets, to take care of themselves. Um, And so these two reasons, first of all, that Samuel's getting old, basically you're not going to live forever, you're not going to be able to be judge over us forever, Samuel, and your sons are not up to the task of taking your place, that forms the basis for the elders to come to Samuel and say, you've got to do something, and here's our plan, we want you to put a king over us. Yeah, Irma. Mhm. Yeah. 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 So did you guys hear that? So it's it's this idea that it is a pretty vast, you know, area of land especially when you figure that they're they're traveling by foot most likely, you know, they might have a donkey or, you know, a, a wagon or something, but they're mostly traveling by foot and so they're all coming together and it it is important enough to them that they're going to have this gathering in order to, to call him out, that they're going to go through all of this in order to actually come and make that statement to him. And it also shows that they didn't trust Samuel to make the arrangement on his own, um, and that they decided that they wanted a king, and that wouldn't have been Samuel's course of action. And so they come to him, they confront him as the elders, and they say, this is what we want. Um, and that that's the next statement there. Now, a point for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so we have to be really careful here. It's going to be really important to our understanding, not only of this passage, but to a lot of what we're going to see in this book. Um, The elders demand Samuel appoint a king over Israel, and Samuel's clearly unhappy with the command, as we're going to see in a moment. And Yahweh also seems to have a problem with it first thing we need to understand, though, and we need to be careful to recognize that the elders request for a king in and of itself is not the problem, and it's not sinful. Their desire to have a king over Israel is not the problem at hand here. The problem is the kind of king that they're asking for. So it's not that they're saying, we want a king. It's actually that they're saying, we demand right now a king. So they're disregarding God's timing They're deciding when the king will come, and they're saying we want a king like the nations. So they don't want the king of God's choosing. They don't want the biblical king, the king that's laid out in the law. They want a king like their neighbors, like the nations. Uh, The Old Testament law actually provides instructions for appointing a king over Israel. So this is in Deuteronomy uh, 17. These are, there's a lot of qualifications, commands about who the king will be and what kind of king he will be. Uh, so I'll read these here. When you come this is Moses speaking in the law, he says, "When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, so that's the promised land that they're in now, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, "I will set a king over me, then notice this, like all the nations that are around me." So way back in Deuteronomy, it's already predicted. That there's going to come a time when the people are going to demand a king like the nations. And this is the concession that God gives. He says, "...when that happens, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother." Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not require many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, referring to the book of Deuteronomy the whole thing, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, the book, his copy of the law, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So a pretty long little you know, excursus in the law to say, and this is in the context as, as Moses is outlining all these rules about judges and priests and the different offices. And then he takes a moment and says, hey, there's going to come a time when the people are going to say, we actually want a king, we want to be like the nations around us, when that happens, God says, it's okay for you to do that. It's going to happen. God will choose a king for the people, but this is the kind of king that God wants his people to have. What's interesting here, so just look at the requirements for a king of Israel. The first one is, is pretty important. It just says that uh, it's the king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So that's the first requirement is that it's it's a person chosen by God and not just that but chosen by God from among your brothers, from among the Israelites. So they don't choose a foreign king. They don't say, hey, this person has been a king over here, so we're going to go headhunt them and bring them over and set them up as our king. But it's actually one of one from among you, so you're not going to be ruled by a foreigner. You're going to be ruled by an actual native of Israel, and it's someone that the Lord chooses. So Yahweh himself chooses who the king will be. So that's the first requirement. Chosen by God from among the Israelites. Second, Interesting one that might not make a lot of sense to us here, but he must not acquire many horses for himself. So that's the the next requirement. Don't multiply the amount of horses in your possession. Don't be a horse collector. No stables for the king, you know, that kind of thing. Kind of kinda bizarre. Any guesses as to why that would be a requirement for the king of Israel. Yeah. Teresa. Mm Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, and we'll see that um, mentioned as another one of the requirements here more specifically, but yeah, that's part of it. What else? What comes to mind when you think of horses? Irma. Yeah, warfare is a big one. Denny, did you have something? Yeah, yep, so it's definitely about status and yeah, so it's all kind of bound up in that. Horses were also a, culturally, they were a representation of power, of uh, of might, and uh, and specifically military might because they were actually an instrument of war. So, so if you had horses, you could uh, pull chariots, you could go into battle. Horses were actually, around this time in history in general, and actually repeatedly throughout history, whenever horses are domesticated and they're put into use in war, that country that kind of innovates that in whatever part of the world we're talking about, that country becomes really powerful. That people starts to be conquerors. You see this with... um with, like, Genghis Khan. You know, why was he able to conquer so much territory? Horses was part of it. You know, it's not the only reason. But because they were moving quicker. They were going through. And, and when you're up on a horse, you're high, elevated above the other people. They can't reach you. You can, you know, hack downward. You can, you know, shoot arrows, and you're kind of protected. And also, you can move a lot quicker. So horses are really... Um, a strategic tool of warfare. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is just the symbolism of power and might and sort of, uh, you know, strength. So the idea here is that the king of Israel is not going to be a warmonger. The king of Israel is not meant to be someone who is overly excited about conquering and about fighting. Um, that, that's part of the role of the king to lead God's people into battle. But that's in the mind of, of God, his king is not obsessed with that. That's not his primary purpose. Um, The next requirement in there is that he's not going to multiply or acquire many wives for himself. And the reason is actually given in the text here. It says, uh, lest, or so that, not, so that his heart will not be turned away from God. Nor shall he acquire for himself uh, excessive silver and gold, which is another one. So he's not going to have so many wives. He's also not going to hoard silver and gold for himself. And then finally, this last one, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And then notice this statement here too, approved by the Levitical priests. So the last requirement is not just a symbolic gesture, That he sits down and copies out his own copy of the law but it actually means that because he does that he now has a copy of the law because remember not everybody has a bible not everybody has a copy of the law it's actually pretty rare that somebody would and so the king as part of becoming the king sits down and physically writes out his own copy and then takes it with him and it says he reads it all the days of his life But then the other detail, and there's really interesting, that it's approved by the Levitical priest. And and actually, it literally means in the presence of the Levitical priest. So this idea that when he copies it down, he's got someone looking over his shoulder to make sure he doesn't leave anything out, that he doesn't add anything, that he doesn't change anything. So, because honestly, the practice of the uh, the, uh, king... In in most of the nations around Israel would be to set your own laws to say okay there's a new regime so I'm going to tell you we're not going to do it like my predecessor I'm changing it completely and oftentimes the king in um, in the culture at that time in a lot of these countries the king was one of the gods was an embodiment of maybe the chief God. And so you see that in Israel. You see that in a lot of the countries and a lot of the cultures early on. And one of the things that sets the Israelite king apart is that not only does he not claim to be God, but he doesn't even get to make his own law. He is bound to the law of God. He copies down God's law in the presence of the priest to make sure that he's going to follow it just like all the other people. And so you see here all of these details All of these details that he's chosen by God, he's not going to multiply horses, he's not a warmonger, he's not going to multiply wives, he's not going to multiply silver or gold, and he has to write for himself a copy of the law that he reads every day. All of those things set the Israelite king apart from the culture of kingship at that time, because in all the nations around Israel the almost mere image is true for all of these other things. They are warmongers. They, um, they're certainly not, uh, you know, chosen by the true God. Um, oftentimes a foreigner would be king over them. They definitely do hoard up silver and gold for themselves and then they set their own laws. And so the whole thing that Deuteronomy here shows us, Deuteronomy 17 shows us, is that that the king of Israel is to be different from the other kings. And so when the elders come to Samuel and say, put over us a king, and they add that phrase, like the nations. They sort of give away exactly that they're not thinking of the biblical king of Israel. They're thinking of a king like the nations. The opposite of that, that kind of king that God has commanded for them to have. Kathy, you have a question? Uh, you said that um, the king, while he was writing, uh, in Galen, uh someone was standing over him watching. Yeah. The priest. So it says in there approved by the Levitical Priests. So would that kind of be like nowadays you,
1: when a lawyer is drawing up
0: a document and like, it has to be notarized? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, it's it's that's exactly right. It's a notarized copy of the law to show that he didn't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, they may have not had a copy, but they would have known it because of how much how important it was for them to learn the law. And if they didn't know it, it would have been an indictment on them for not learning it, not that they didn't have the opportunity to know it. Yeah. But that's a good point. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. You know, um, to me it's yeah. not like a couple pages. So man, it's gotta be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We're t- and we're talking about a pretty big book of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what the Hebrew word there is. It might be scroll, but yeah. Cheryl or Sherry. Sorry.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. He had to know enough to be able to write it down in his own hand. Yeah. April. Mm-hmm. Um, not just for war, not defense, yeah 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 and that's a very central aspect of the use of power in the scriptures in general is that God is always keeping his chosen people at a from the, from our perspective, at a disadvantage, so that he can demonstrate his power and protection over them. Yeah. Do You have something else? I uniquely
1: designed our bodies to give his image and to Because, for instance, when you write, there's lots of research that there's a neurological connection between your hand, whichever dominant one you write with. So
0: he is not only creating a physical copy for the people, yeah. he is embedding it physically right. the body. That's a very good observation. In fact, one of the uh, commentators that I was reading this week was saying that there's some theory that, or just, just the observation that um, writing down the law kind of presupposes a kinesthetic learner, so someone who learns by doing and by physically getting involved in the learning. And uh, and when you think about the qualities of a king at that time, especially, you know, they are, they're warlords, you know, they're fighters, they're physical people, they're charismatic, and oftentimes that kind of personality profile lines up with a kinesthetic learner. And so it's potential that God is actually seeing that and bringing those things together. So I just thought that was interesting. I didn't include that because I don't know if we could ever possibly hope to verify that that's true but uh but it's interesting yeah so all right so um so the thing displeased samuel so we're back in the text here the thing displeased samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and samuel prayed to yahweh so here's the interesting thing this technically would have been samuel's call So the elders can come to him and they can say, we want a king, we demand a king, Uh, you're getting old, your sons are, you know, a bunch of losers, so give us a king, but at the end of the day, it's Samuel's decision, because the job of the prophet here would be to be the one who's going to be the king maker, so it's his responsibility, and it will be in the next few chapters, his responsibility to anoint the new king, and so he could have said no he could have started a war over this you know he could have uh, resisted what they were saying and as prophet and judge he's responsible to lead the people including the elders and so if he hears this as a bad idea from them then it's his responsibility to push back on it and to, to tell them that he doesn't like it and this is why and obviously he doesn't like the request it says that the thing displeased him and it's not hard to appreciate that uh, that he wouldn't have been pleased by the request when you first of all remember how it's phrased right? you're too old and your sons are terrible but, uh, but it's also it's possible that Samuel doesn't like the request for the right reasons. We can't really tell yet, but it seems like when God tells him in a second that they're rejecting me, not you, that it's almost like Samuel sees this primarily not as a transgression of the law, but actually as an offense against himself. And it would be hard not to, right? If he's kind of seen as the main judge and the main power, you know, powerful person in Israel at that time, them coming to him and saying, whatever you're doing is not working and we want to go a completely different direction, we want a whole new form of government, then, uh, then that seems like an indictment against him personally. And so it's possible that he took it that way. But uh, what's really interesting and notable and pretty noble of Samuel is that even though he knows the law and he knows that the elders are asking for the wrong kind of king and, uh, and that they're certainly asking for the, wrong, for the wrong kind of king with the wrong motivation, he still goes to Yahweh with the request. So he doesn't just answer them right away. He actually takes the time to go before the Lord and say, this is what the people are asking from me. Can you help me understand this? Can you tell me what to do? So he's reliant on God, uh, which is completely to his credit here. And so in this way, he is acting perfectly in line with his responsibilities and his role as a prophet of God. He represents the desires and the values and the the, um, desires, requests of the people to God he doesn't just answer them for himself he takes the time to go before him Uh, and then it says and when he brings that to God it says Yahweh said to Samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them so first of all this would probably be pretty surprising to Samuel again he knows the law he knows what they're up to he sees the problem he's displeased by it And Yahweh still, though, wants to allow their request. And so here we might see, again, that window into Samuel's motivation. Yahweh is careful to point out to him, in almost this comforting tone, just realize they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. Um, And so thus far, this is the story. The elders ask for something that is God's will, to have a king, but for the wrong reasons, right? Because they want one that make them look more like the nations. And so Samuel recognizes that ill intent and he righteously challenges it, but also he's doing that possibly for the wrong reasons because he desires to be king or to be the powerful one and he sees what they're doing as a threat to his power because he doesn't want to yield his authority. And then Yahweh allows the request of the people even though it contradicts his stated will. For them, and it's not in their best interests. This is really interesting. We're going to kind of build here. Why does God here say, Fine, have it your way? Why does God say, You're doing this for the wrong reasons, you're rejecting me as king over them, but obey them? So we're going to see something interesting playing out here says according to all the deeds so Yahweh goes on according to all the deeds that they Israel have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they are also doing to you to Samuel and so Yahweh here is explaining his decision to allow that which is contrary to his will for his people by highlighting their history of apostasy and wandering and so in effect God is giving his people what they want and he's giving them what they want as an act of judgment against them. So Do you see what's going on there? He's saying, you are so set, and you always have been, from the day I brought you out of Egypt, on moving against my will for you. You are so set on discarding the ways that I've revealed to you as the right way to live, and just substituting your own way, substituting your own will. And so in this case, he's saying, if you are dead set, on having a king, and having it now, and having the kind of king that you want, then go ahead, but it's really as an act of judgment against them. And so, uh, it's really a deeply biblical notion, and it's something that we're going to look at when we get to the end here, but it's this idea that if you're determined in moving in one way and you're determined not to listen to God, not to listen to how he's trying to tell you that's not the right way, go this way, if you're dead set on doing what you want in the way that you want, in the timing that you want it to be done, then God will, in a sense, oftentimes step aside and let you have exactly what you asked for. But unfortunately, when we get what we asked for, There's a unique kind of judgment that comes with that because we realize that in getting what we wanted, we miss out on what God wanted for us. So again, we'll come back to that in a moment, but that's exactly what's going on here. Sometimes the worst judgment possible is God giving us exactly what we ask for. Um, So he says, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So he's saying, I'm going to give them what they want, but take a moment before we do that and give them one last chance and really spell out for them what is going to happen to them if they pursue this course, if they set up a king for themselves, a king like the nations. And so that's what we'll see in the next section here. Any questions on that first section of the passage? Yeah, it is, yeah. And it it's uh, important to look at, some, sometimes we are tempted to read the words that are specifically spoken by God in Scripture, so especially this last section here. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'm tempted to read them as kind of this thundering voice from heaven. And oftentimes that is the voice that comes, that that is being portrayed in the Scriptures. But sometimes it's more of this kind of like, mournful voice, and and, uh, more mournful tone that Yahweh has here, where he's saying, uh, I mean, just look at verse 8, he's saying, according to all the deeds that they've done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, it's almost just this feeling like, I am trying to show them the right way, and yet they are persistently going in the opposite direction and so it's it's not that he's taking some you know sick pleasure and saying fine have it your way watch how it crashes and burns and i can't wait it's just more this idea of like if that's really what you want then i'll let you have it but you're not going to like the results that come from it and so it's really interesting there any other questions chris
1: Really not in your way. Some of the I do on it. Yeah. But like, like like when the like when the says to be patient. or do range Darth. Is it really do range this way and not your way.
0: Yeah. That's right, yeah. That's spot on to what is happening in the passage, yeah. Um, Any other questions before we press onward here? All right. So the next thing we're going to see here is Samuel now addressing the people, uh, going back to them and doing what God asked him to do, which is to spell out for them, this is what's going to happen if you go forward with the plan that you have concocted here. And so... Uh, here we go, the perils of absolute monarchy, starting in verse 10. So he says, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young, men and your donkeys and put them to his work he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the lord will not answer you in that day so pretty uh harsh uh rebuke here but it's really a warning remember he's telling Samuel give him one last chance spell out for them exactly what's coming for them and so see this as that warning as he's pleading with them saying that you don't realize what you're asking for Um, and so let me tell you exactly what you are asking for so says samuel told all the words of yahweh to the people who were asking for a king from him and so remembering that it's is important here because this isn't just Samuel coming up with ideas of well this could happen or this might happen if you put a king over you but this is actually that Yahweh is telling him what to say here he's reporting on the word of of God that was given to him as a message to them did i see a hand just oh i, I think it also comes back, like, with us too it also is telling you showing you how patient God is mhm Yeah. he's like with us and we will you know, say again well are you sure you want this because you know and he's so patient with us Yeah. Like he's trying to be patient and put it out there and say exactly well, don't you to know exactly what's going to happen exactly okay. yeah um, and so he begins his description he says It says, uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And so the Hebrew for ways of the king there is mishpat ha which literally means the custom of the king. So that word custom is really interesting there, and I think it's a better translation for this reason. Everything that he's outlining there is not only, he's not just describing how Saul or David or Solomon or any other of the kings of Israel will behave. He's not actually giving in detail the actual exact things that those kings will do, even though they will do a lot of those things, and it will be to the detriment of the the individual people in Israel. But what he's actually spelling out here is the custom of the kings of the nations surrounding Israel. So these are the. This is the custom. This is the habit. This is the natural thing that kings did at that time. So what he's describing here is not just here are some possible ways that this might happen, but actually, actual historical evidence lines up with what he's saying here. That these the other nations, the other kings were doing exactly this. This is the custom of a king at that time. It's the mishpat hamelik. It's the actual thing that they did. And so, in other words, he's not. He's saying you want you say you want a king like the nations. Do you read? Realize what those kings are really like, the way they rule. And then he's saying, let me spell that out for you. Let me show you their custom, their way of ruling. He says that he'll take uh, your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So the first warning is that the, the custom of the king is to draft the young men of the country and enlist them in the army. So the very first thing that you'll see when you appoint a king like the nations is that he wants to go to war. He wants to raise bigger armies. And then he outlines these three uh, offices that are described of um, people in his army. And so a couple pictures here. But the first uh, thing that's described is the charioteer. So this is the person who drives the chariot, um, which a chariot is kind of depicted here. This is an Egyptian chariot, but a lot of the, a lot of the um, technology that... Um, that was used in warfare even up till this time was the same kind of technology that was used in Egypt when the people of God left that place so it was really a frozen they were kind of frozen in time with their technology not a lot of innovation going on it, because the period of the judges um, and actually in that part of the, the um, world during the period of the judges was actually referred to as something of like a, a dark age for the people in that time like a lot of things were lost that previously they had known about and so the best technology they had was from back when they were slaves in Egypt and so this is an Egyptian uh, chariot down here and you'll notice it's very small it's very small and look how um, thin the little connectors on the wheels are so they're not very safe Right, you hit a rock or something, or something runs into that on the side, and you know you're going to be going down, and the horse is going to be running off, and all of those things. And then notice up here, there's spots for two horses, and look how closely put together they are. And so they, it's really two there. Um, Benefit that this thing moves quickly, and so they kind of weighed out the balance between you know having it more rugged and having it go quicker in battle and so the chariots were used by kings or by these high up officers in the in the military, and they were always driven by though a, like a regular enlisted soldier and so you can see in this picture over here this guy right here in the you know fancy uh, metal shingle dress is uh, the, he's the king or he's the pharaoh and the uh, driver over here you'll notice is a little bit more modest or I guess immodestly dressed um, but uh, this guy's the driver and so the, the king just basically does what he's doing there he yells and he looks you know magnificent and he rides on the chariot while the driver does all the work and actually has to navigate it and then, um, and so that's that's the first uh, office that's described there. The second one is just the horseman, the person who sort of takes care of the horses. And what we see here is that that's actually some uh, something of a distinct um, role from the charioteer. So someone who's responsible for the uh, the the uh, stables for the herd of the of the horses of the king. And then the third one is the interesting one, the chariot runner. And you can see him in this picture over here, and in uh, this engraving, which was found in modern day. Iraq, and he's um, up in the front here, and so when it says that uh, he's going to appoint people to run before his chariots, it doesn't mean that it's like he's just some sicko who likes to chase human beings down with his chariot or something, but actually that's a real role. The chariot runner had a um, was actually a a recognized role because a lot of the inscriptions, as we've seen, there's this kind of person out in front of the chariot who's sometimes holding on to the horses, sometimes running around with a sword or with a bow or something like that. And the thing about the chariot runner that's kind of interesting is that we still don't really know what that person did like we have some guesses but we don't really know what the role in warfare of the guy running next to the chariot really was a couple possibilities that people have speculated on though it could be that he was there to protect the charioteer because that guy can't attack that guy's got the reins he's driving the chariot and so maybe he's there to you know uh, defend him if people are running up to the chariot trying to get to him Um, another possibility is that he is there to hop in the chariot and drive if the charioteer is shot down or if he's harmed or if he falls out of the chariot because you can't leave Pharaoh or the king or whoever is in that chariot with the guy alone. Um, and then the other possibility, which is kind of interesting, is that maybe he was there actually to run in front of the chariot so the horses knew where to go. And that is actually, that's my favorite theory because a lot of the times, like, again, in this one, he's holding on to it. He seems to be the one who's guiding the the chariot while this guy uh, seems to be just holding on. Um, And so we don't really know, but it's possible that the person driving the chariot wasn't really driving it, but (laughs) the guy in front was actually the one guiding where it went by running in front of it, which is still not a job that I would want. So, yeah, Kathy. Yeah, maybe, could be. Yeah. 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 Right. And the other thing to know about chariots is that they're not at this point in history, they're not very effective means of battle. Like they're not built for the purpose of being a effective way to get the upper hand in a the battle. They're built as an intimidation tactic because, again, look at these things. Look at how impractical they really seem to be. And they are. They're meant to be a way for the king to ride in in his majesty and so that the, for the other army can go, oh my gosh, look at this technology. Look at this king arrayed in his splendor. Look at how he's driven by these two horses and, you know, that kind of thing. So they're not really a strategic, you know, this isn't like the panzer tank or whatever. This is like a, just a, a scare tactic, it's, a, it's part of the, uh, the pageantry of war it's not really part of the actual warfare um, so he, that's the first thing that he warns them he's going to raise an army, he's going to send your sons into these roles and then notice that the three offices he outlines here have to do with the king puffing himself up, not with being effective in battle but with you know he's going to appoint them to drive him around in his chariot so that he can look cool, so that people can be in awe of him um, second, or the next one there is that he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and so the second warning here is an extension of the last one, the king is going to expand the army and it's a warning because it reminds this agrarian uh, this people who are you know farmers and ranchers that a king is going to radically transform their culture uh, he's going to make it more difficult for them to support themselves because even if um, even if this king and the army that he raises up helps them to claim some relative security against their enemies he's radically rewiring this country because he's hampering their ability to have their young men stay close and tend the farm and drive the animals and take care of mom and dad. And so he's taking the young men away and he's making warriors out of them instead of farmers and ranchers. And so that's part of the warning here in the... the, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties is just kind of an art an artistic way to say a lot of them <laughs> so it's not uh as far as we know that doesn't refer to actual like military practice um and then and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest so as if it's not bad enough that he's taking them away from farming at home and from taking care of the farm back home he's actually not just taking people to fight in the army but actually taking them from their farms and moving them to his own farms, because the king doesn't farm for himself. He's provided for by other people. He's a parasite in this sense. The king doesn't really produce anything. He's kind of this figurehead, and maybe he's a strong leader, and maybe he'll do some good things like Saul and David and Solomon all will, but fundamentally, he's a parasite, and he's... he's Uh, sucking the resources off of the people in the nation and that's really one of the fundamental objections that Samuel is giving to them here is that he's just going to take Um, And then he says to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. So he's also going to need weaponry. He's going to need chariots made. He's going to need manpower for that as well. And then it's not only the sons, but he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. So not only the men, but also the women will be conscripted to the king's service. Uh, He's also going to come for your daughters. And notice how the content now moves from warfare to just these luxury kind of items. He's gone from armies and sustenance and weaponry to these luxuries of perfume and baked goods. And so the king is not only doing what seems necessary, but he is just going to feed himself with your hard-earned work. And then uh, he's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So he takes your people and he takes your land. He's going to actually take what you have lived on and what you have worked and he's going to call it his own. He's going to take the very best of them because the king uh, doesn't take the bad stuff. He doesn't take the leftovers. He wants the best and he demands it. And he's going to take the best and he's going to give it to the servants, the least in his household. And then we have here, he'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And so on top of it all, as Samuel builds up this worsening and worsening case he gets to he's going to tax you <laughs> the king is going to impose taxes upon you which um, apparently to them a 10 percent flat tax just seemed exorbitant which um, is interesting but he's going to take 10 percent of everything he's going to take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys even and put them to his work and he'll take a tenth of your flocks and so This is where the king is not only taking what he needs, but it's starting to sound more and more like theft. He's just going to take everything. He doesn't even need some of it, but he's going to take it because he's the king, and that's his job, and that's his prerogative. Um, And uh, kings are not typically the kind of people who live simply or are generous, but they're the kind of people who just take for the purpose of taking. And then finally, the last statement there just kind of is there to sum up everything. And it's kind of interesting that in the English we have it as part of a phrase. This is really, this statement is referring to everything that came before it here, and it's that you shall be his slaves. So you think, elders of Israel, that appointing this king is going to give you more freedom? Because it's going to protect you against your enemies. You think that this is going to be you finally devising the right way for the nation to live. You think that you're breaking free of the old ways and that you're moving boldly into the future. But let me tell you, and this is again Yahweh speaking through Samuel. Let me tell you the truth is that having a king over you is just going back to slavery. You're going to be his slaves. You're going to be completely at his service. There's nothing that he can tell you to do that you can refuse him. There's nothing that he can ask for from you that you can hold back for yourself. Um, And so as difficult and unstable as the period of the judges was, what we can say is that it was a period of relative, personal, and local freedom that people basically could live the kind of lives they wanted to live. They basically had the freedom to, be, to farm their own land and to take care of their people. And what Samuel, again, is warning them here is that this unified government, one major drawback for as much as you think it's going to be good for you is that under this monarchy, you're, um, it, it's going to be the ability of the man at the top of the totem pole to impose his universal will no matter what. And so that's what it comes back to. All of these things represent just this idea that you're losing your own freedom when you submit to this strong man that you're putting over you. And that's kind of the witness that we see throughout history, right? That people in times of necessity, maybe, turn to these authoritarian rulers and give them all the power. And you think of like Caesar who says, oh, give me the power and I'll give it back as soon as there's, you know, stability in the empire. But they never do. Right? And so sometimes in those times of necessity, you say, okay, fine, strong man, take this, run with it, protect us, build up the army, put your vision into motion, and then they always come to regret it later on, because in doing that, you may save your own life, you may save your country, but you lose your freedom, and your country, your people, ends up losing its soul more often than not. You had a hand up, Teresa. Right? <laughs> it so it's like it you yeah. like, would think that would be enough right. be You would. Yeah. Um and so for as bad as all of that is, though, there's gonna be even worse in these next few statements here. That in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. So essentially he's saying I'll let you do this if it's really what you want, but mark my words, you will regret it. And again, this isn't a, you know, scary doom and gloom God who's saying, I just can't wait to wreak havoc upon you for disobeying me. But it's actually saying, this is your last chance. Are you sure this is what you want? It's not too late to turn around and to embrace my way. And remember that, that God has the intention to give them a king that it's in his law that he's going to appoint a king for them, they're just superseding his time. They're short-circuiting his process. They're saying, we don't want to wait, we want it now. And everything in the book up to this point has been building toward the king, so you can think it's probably not even far off. In fact, as we look into the future of where we're moving in this book, they're going to get a king. And that king is going to be King Saul, and Saul is going to have a lot of promise as a king, but he's going to be a a horrible failure, and he's going to bring a lot of pain and suffering upon God's people. Who's going to come after Saul? King David, who's going to be the greatest of Israel's kings. And so it's possible, we don't get a lot of, you know, exposition on this, but it's possible that all they had to do was wait for David. That they just wanted the king right now, when in reality they just had one more generation before a king would have been established over them and it would have been the good king and they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble here. And just, you know, a lot of the, the book and of the books of First and Second Samuel are consumed with the war of succession between uh, Saul and David. And all of that could have been passed over if they would have just embraced God's way for them. But no, instead they, they hear this warning and they're going to move forward here. And then the last statement is really the chilling one. Yahweh will not answer you in that day. So you're going to see the problem with this. You're going to cry out to God, but he's not going to hear you. And, uh, and this is foreboding because it just says Yahweh's told you his way. You're insisting on your own. He's going to let you have it. But when you regret it, don't come crying to him, essentially. You can't blame him. You can't say, God, why have you done this to me? Because he's made it very clear that you're doing it to yourself, that he's just giving you what you've asked for. And so essentially, the answer here is the question. If you come crying out for help to Yahweh, then just go back and realize that you've only brought this on yourself. And so, to say that he's not going to hear you in that day doesn't mean that God is literally, you know, has removed his ability to hear them or that, you know, he's totally cold to their situation, but that he's saying, What do you want me to do? I'm giving you what you wanted and now you have to watch this play out and that's what's going to happen until he can restore them to the good king that he had in mind for them all along. Any questions on that section? Anything we looked at there? Yeah. Right. right Right. not ever because this Right. And say they were gonna they Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that ultimately is who all of this points to is that the ultimate king of uh, of Israel who doesn't multiply horses, who isn't obsessed with warfare, who doesn't hoard wealth for himself, um, is that exact king that we saw described in. The passage in Philippians last week. So, the one who didn't see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So, that's the ultimate king of Israel. That he doesn't, he does say no to all the position and all the wealth and all the benefits. And comes as a servant and suffers and dies and then is raised and taken up to glory and now you know we're awaiting his glorious return. And so you see that Jesus does end up fulfilling all of that and so much more than they even could have begun to grasp just how complete his reign is and how powerful it is. Yeah. Kathy? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, um, I guess it depends on what you mean by taking care of. Like, well, like he's aware of what's happening and he that mm-hmm.
1: in this circumstance, is he also that way everywhere
0: else? Yeah, so the Old Testament's interesting because, um, so whenever when there's anybody on the earth, you know, they are under the rule of God in the sense, this is the doctrine that we call common grace, and it means that there are certain things in this world that God has created and given to everyone. And so even those who reject him, even those who um, who don't have a relationship with him, he still takes care of them in a sense. He still extends life to them. He still gives them, um, the, the example in scripture that's given um, is that he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. So everybody's crops get watered, not just the people um, who follow after him and who choose him. But in the Old Testament, we see that God chooses his people Israel. And there's actually something interesting going on in this passage on this note too that God chooses Israel as his people, and sometimes we look at that choice and say, well, that's strange and capricious and unjust that he would choose one pe- per, you know, group of people and not choose anybody else. Um, but he chose them first of all for the purpose of revealing himself to all nations. So he he makes them a kingdom of priests, right? And that and the meaning of that is that they exist as a nation to demonstrate who God is to the world. And so insofar as they fail to do that, and they do a lot throughout the Old Testament, they're failing to live up to the choice that God has chosen them for. And so God's choice of his people is not just a, you know, a hoarding choice, it's a missionary choice that God God didn't choose nobody. He chose a people to reveal his glory through them. And ultimately, that comes through Jesus, through whom all the nations and all the families of the world are blessed. The other thing, though, and that's what we see in this passage, is that God's people don't seem to see that choice as something that makes them better than everyone else. They actually see it as a choice that they will do anything to get rid of, right? Which is what they're doing in this passage. They're saying, God, we don't want your way. We want to be like everybody else like, why did you choose us, Unchoose us, let us be like them, let us have a king like them, they seem to be living it up, and having a good time, and we want to be like them, and so take this choice away, and so it's just kind of this interesting note in there that we get caught up on, why would God choose one group over the other people, and actually that seems to be Israel's question too, why God do we have to be the people who have to live this way, why can't we just be like everybody else instead, which is not an um, unfamiliar feeling for Christians in certain points, and especially probably for young Christians, you know, God, why, why do I I have to live this way? Nobody else seems to care about this stuff. Why do I have to follow these rules? And so it's it's, uh, pretty interesting that there's nothing new under the sun. All right, Yeah, let's move on to the last section here. Not that again. Okay. So, uh, starting in verse 19 to the end here. So the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And here's, this is really interesting. They said, no. (laughs) But there shall be a king over us, that we may That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his own city or to his city. And so the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. So the people are set in their ways. They don't have any intention of being convinced. They've made up their minds that they want a king like the nations, and they're not going to hear anything else from Samuel. He gives them this whole thing, and they refuse to obey his voice. And they say back to him, really interesting statement, no, exclamation point, but there shall be a king over us. So Samuel goes through this whole thing. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. They don't say, we don't care. They don't say, we're not really worried about that. We disagree with your assessment, Samuel. They just say, no, there shall be a king over us. We demand it. We are telling you what is going to happen. Um, they double down on their reasoning too. In the next thing here, uh, that we may also be like all the nations. There shall be a king over us so that we can be like all the nations. They want to be like everybody else. And, uh, and again, you see how this idea of God's choice is something that they're always trying to get rid of. In the Old Testament. They don't want to be God's chosen people. Sometimes the God's choice of of his people doesn't feel like a blessing. It feels like a curse. Feels like God chose us to suffer for him, which is actually what the New Testament tells us, is that sometimes that's an implication of being his chosen people. Then they say then they add to the reasoning also. So they say that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and so here's the real knife twist for Samuel who is judge of Israel say we don't want a judge and we don't want you as judge we want a king to judge us there they see in other words and they're telling Samuel to his face we see this king as a direct substitution for you and uh, and what God had said earlier is that they may think that that's what they're doing, but they're actually rejecting me as king over them. They don't want me to rule over them. They want a king like the nations. Um, and then that's uh, where we see the last statement here, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And then so if the last statement was the knife twist for Samuel, saying we want a king to judge us, this one's the knife twist for Yahweh, saying... We don't want Yahweh of the hosts, Yahweh of the armies. We don't want that God who has delivered us from the Philistines. We don't want him to lead us into battle. We want a king to do it instead. We want a human being. We want a strong man. We want somebody you know, in golden armor to lead us into battle. And it really is a, it's just kind of a, a ludicrous statement. If you remember what happened just one chapter ago, which was that for the whole book of 1 Samuel, God's people have been going to battle against the Philistines and getting beat. They've been getting routed. They've been getting whooped over and over and over again. And then the one time that they're victorious is the time that they turn to God, that they turn to Samuel and say, Will you pray to Yahweh for us? Do not cease crying out to Yahweh on our behalf. That's when they go into battle and they actually are victorious. And then immediately after that, in the text anyway, they're coming back to Samuel and saying, hey, so it's going really well for us, so now we decided we don't need God anymore, and we don't need you anymore, and actually we want a king like the nations, the nation that we just beat in battle uh, by virtue of God's protection of us. And so it's just, it's madness. It doesn't make any sense. And the people still are discarding their almighty God, for a human being king like the nations, a figurehead that they can all look to and say, there's the king, here he comes in his golden armor. And so it says, when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in Yahweh's ears. And so once again, Samuel performs his prophetic duty. He reports the people's request to God. And then it says, Yahweh said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So he said, I tried, I gave them my message. They still want this, so go ahead and do it. Give them what they're asking for. Yahweh reaffirms his decision. If they're set on this course of action, I'll let them pursue it, and I'll let them bear the consequences of disobedience. I'll let them have what they want. Just don't come crying to me when you get it, right? And then Samuel, this last statement is just kind of strange, and it's, it's not really an ending, which is interesting. It says, Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So it's really interesting. He doesn't come back to them and say, God has chosen to give you what you want, or, you know, it's not, I didn't really like it, but God says that he's going to give you this anyway, or, you know, woe to you, who, you know, all that kind of prophetic things that you'd expect to be the message. It's just, okay, go home, got the message, get out of here, you know, head back home. And what we're going to see now is that Samuel now has a job. And that's to anoint the new king of Israel. And that's what is going to happen over the next few chapters here. Is as Saul is going to become uh, God's choice for this king who will be judgment against his own people, um, which is going to be a whole can of worms unto itself. <laughs> Any questions on the text before we move into the ending stuff here? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: God Right. Yeah, there's a it's a strange thing in the Bible where it almost seems like the more that God demonstrates his power, the more like fantastically and, you know, majestically he demonstrates himself, The quicker the people are to turn back the other direction. Which is just mind, I mean, it's just baffling that that would be the way that this works. Like, you think God leads his people out of Egypt, he um, parts the sea in front of them, they walk through on dry land, he wipes out the army of the world's superpower behind them, he's leading them with a pillar of fire. So a big you know, cylinder of fire is going through the land in front of them and they're walking behind it. And then what's, what happens immediately after that? They say to, to Moses, why would you bring us out here? We were better off back in Egypt. Can we just go back and be slaves in Egypt where at least we had food to eat? I mean, it's madness. And yet that seems to be something that bears out in our lives as well in a certain sense, right? We have these great experiences, we have these great moments with God, God demonstrates his power, and yet we are so very quick to just forget about it. Or to be seeing it, and to be living in it, and yet to still just kind of not care, and just kind of want to be ourselves and do our own thing anyway. Yeah, Denny. Yeah. Yeah. hmm Yeah yeah this desire to and and that's a phrase yeah and it's really interesting the phrase that's going to come up over and over again in first samuel is is this idea of departing to the right or to the left so are you walking in god's way are you keep your eyes fixed on him or are you moving to the right or to the left and that's kind of the image that comes up over and over again in in first samuel and it it shows that that's almost exactly what they were doing, is instead of saying, this is God's will for us, this is the kind of nation he wants for us to have, this is his law that he's revealed, this is the kind of king that he's going to bring us, instead they're saying, well, what's going on over here? Because that looks kind of good, they've got a lot going on. What's going on over here? Well, that seems kind of... So in, are they keeping their eyes fixed on the goal that God has set before them, or are they turning to the right or to the left? Yeah, Absolutely. yeah yeah absolutely yeah Kathy uh-huh. God told them to continue in the way and they looked to the right or the left instead Not, I mean, we're not talking about physically. It's just a metaphor for, like, God tells them, this is the way I want you to live, and yet they say, well, what about this way, or what about that way? Yeah. Well, I was so. just going to say, uh, I've been reading about
1: World War II and, and when the people were marching into the death camps. That's exactly what the Nazis would tell them. They would look, look at any person and say, you go that way, you go that way, and it determined their fate. It hmm. like which way they
0: went. Interesting. Maybe there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. I don't know. Once there might have been a person the Nazis <laughs> picked out not go and that's because yeah. maybe was a girl and them. Huh. Wow. Well, I thought we couldn't get any darker with the subject matter here today, but my goodness, okay. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a... Uh, so I have a Bible reading principle that I see in this passage, and it's the this, this simple one that's Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you want to understand the specific portion of Scripture that you're in, you have to understand it in the context of the whole canon of Scripture, the whole witness of Scripture, the whole Bible. You have to think about, and and that's what's called biblical theology. It just basically means that our approach to the Bible isn't such that we take things and just kind of isolate them but actually that everything that we have in the Bible is meant to be a cohesive whole, that it all informs uh, everything else that we read. And so reading 1 Samuel 8, we might be tempted, and this is just an example of this principle, we might be tempted to see the elder's desire for a king as the central problem here. Because it really kind of seems like that's what's going on, right? Just reading this passage alone, you might be tempted to say, well, clearly what is wrong is that they wanted a king. They're asking for a king, and God never intended his people to have a king. Well, we know that's not right, though, because then we look at Deuteronomy 17, and we see not only that monarchy in Israel was a certainty, so he says, you will ask for a king, this will come to pass, but actually that God gave specific instructions for it. And so, when we isolate ourselves in one thing, and we don't look beyond that to say, what else does the Bible say about this? Then we can very easily get off track on our interpretation of what the Scripture means um, and so only when we have these instructions on a king in mind can we see that what the Israelites, can we see what they did wrong? Can we see what the problem was? And it's not that they wanted a king, but it's the kind of king that they wanted. And that, just looking at uh, Deuteronomy 17, really enlightens our understanding of 1 Samuel 8. And so that's a, a practice that I would encourage you to get into. And most, um, most study Bibles that you use, and actually if you use like the ESV app or the U.S version app, if you like to have all the different Bible versions in there, a lot of times you can turn on where cross-references will be a thing on there, and you can get the little, uh, like usually it's a little A in the superscript above a a passage, and you can click on it, and it'll tell you other uh, passages that speak of that, so let me show you something, here's my ESV app, Um, so here's 1 Corinthians, remember why i was looking at first corinthians 1 but um you see these little letters in there so there's the a after paul called so then this a is a cross references here and so it says c romans 1 1 so paul called by the will so what does that say Romans 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. So then you see, oh, okay, so that's directing me to look at these other instances where Paul has begun a letter and what he says about that. So scroll down a little bit. Uh, It says, uh, let's see, something more substantial here. Okay, so for the word of, of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, so click on the B next to folly and look at all these verses here. So it's showing me verse twenty-one within First Corinthians one also talks about the wisdom of God. So it contrasts with the folly of those who are perishing. The twenty-three, we preach Christ crucified—a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So there's folly again. Twenty-five, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Then you can look at even in the next chapter, two fourteen. The natural person does not accept the things. Of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him, and so you see how cross references are just at your fingertips because of the technology that we have. So any Bible app that you get on your phone or on, you know, website that you look at on your computer, and then a lot of study Bibles have those printed in there for you as well. Those are a great resource to make sure that when you're reading a passage that doesn't make a lot of sense the best thing you can do is to cast light on that passage from other parts of Scripture. Because we believe that the Bible is a cohesive whole. And so here's the basis for that. Um, we believe that the Bible, the whole Bible, is inspired by God. Me, and that means, when we say that it's inspired by God, it means that he worked through the human author of any given book of the Bible— such that the exact words he intended to be written were written in the original manuscripts. So basically that means that God, when, when Paul sits down to write a letter, God works through him in such a way that the very words that he wrote down in that moment in time that he wrote them down were the exact words that God intended for him to write, to us to everyone to the people that he was writing to then and to us here today as well um now over the process of of you know generations where you might have little footnotes in your bible where it says that other manuscripts say this or that that's why we say that the inspiration applies to the original manuscripts but that's the basic idea of inspiration and the implication of that is that the same god inspired every single book of the bible So a lot of times uh, non-Christians or people who don't really believe in, uh, you know, supernatural, transcendent God will talk about the Bible as really it's a collection of books. And they're half right. It is a collection of books. It's written by different people across an enormous amount of time from different cultures and different languages to different people with different presuppositions and personalities and all of these different things. So it's a very diverse set of books, the Bible. But at the same time, it's all inspired by the same spirit and so on that basis, by virtue of it being written by, the, by a ton of different people, by the same spirit working within them and through them, We can read it as a cohesive whole. It is good and right for us to take things said in Genesis and see what they have to do with things said in Revelation. It's good and right for us to say, this is what Jesus says in the Gospels, and say, how does that pair up with what was said about Jesus in Isaiah? It's a cohesive whole because it's all inspired by the same God, and that God doesn't change. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same God who inspired Moses to write the law is the God who inspired John to write his Gospel. So. Thank you because I always was yeah. like, you know, I had downloaded uh, the app to its VM. uh And it was like and I never knew what all those letters were in there and it was yeah. like, Oh well, you know, to me I just like read and I just, you know, I was like, no no And I went did a way you said yeah. like, "Oh, there are." Yep, yep. And sometimes because, you know, those were made by mortal men, sometimes the references, I'm like, "I don't see what that has to do with that." And <laughs> so you have to do yeah. a little more digging, but oftentimes it's really helpful, yeah. you know. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Any questions on that or thoughts? Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Sometimes you have to toggle the settings a little bit, but yeah. But use the technology, guys. I mean, Christians from most of Christian history would look at us and be like, "Oh my gosh, the resources you guys have—it's incredible." Yeah. Yeah. In fact, before even study Bibles, like paper study Bibles, were there. You had to get out. You guys know this, but you had to get out a concordance and look up where the thing is, and then get, so you got all these books around, and you're trying to track it all. Around. Yeah, yeah. And concordances are are a good tool, and if you have one, use it. But they're so weird too, because I swear there's entries for like the in a concordance, and it's like, what. Who would ever need to do that? Like, I just sat there one day when I came across the the entry, which is like half of the book. Like, why would you ever want to know every time the word the is used in Scripture? Just, I mean, at that point, just read it straight through and you'll find all of them. All right. Last thing is our life application. And this is uh, coming back to really the theme that we've seen throughout the whole passage. And And it's this. Don't assume that because you got what you wanted, God willed it. God wanted you to have it. Um, so the Israelites demanded a king. They basically demanded a king. Uh, look at these, these verses again. In verse 5, the elders said to him, to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So it's a command. It's not a question. It's not, hey, maybe think about this, Samuel. It's do this for us. And then it's even stronger in 19 to 20. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No. But there shall be a king over us that we may, uh, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they basically demand it. And sometimes God allows that which is contrary to his will as judgment on sin. Now... It gets a little tricky, because how can anything that happens be contrary to God's will? Well, there's God's will in the sense that he's declared, this is the way that I want things to go, this is my desired will for this world, and then there's God's will as in, you know, the things that he allows to happen in this world, that those are also within his will. So you can actually say um, in a really, you know, messed up statement that God, everything that happens is God's will, even the stuff that is against his will, that is contrary to his will, even that is God's will, uh, but that's actually exactly how John Calvin puts it and if he has comfort saying that then I guess I'm not going to challenge him on it so God allows sometimes that which is contrary to his will to his ways as judgment against sin and that's what we see in verses 7 to 9 As the Lord said to, or, and the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you Samuel but they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they are also doing to you now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then here's a verse from Romans that talks about this same kind of phenomenon. And so you see that it is all throughout the Bible. And again, this is another cross-reference, so just to go back to that. Romans 1, 21 to 25. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the important part. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what this passage shows us is that sometimes when we desire something and we are dead set on pursuing that thing and we may ask God for it and we may decide that we're going to move after it and we get it, the actual getting of that thing is God's judgment against us because he's telling us you have decided that you're not going to listen to me that you're not going to take my word for it, that you're not going to to step out of your selfish way and into my way. And so I'm going to give you what you want, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences. And it's all with the hope that those things will then draw us back to him ultimately. So sometimes, here's how this fits with our application. Sometimes we may want something so much, and we may insist on it to the point that God stops trying to show us his will and inviting us to walk in it, and instead gives us what we want so that we can see the consequences of insisting on our own way. Here's a quote from Ravi Zacharias that I really like. He says, if you are determined in going in a certain direction, if you are bent on silencing the voice of God in your life, you know what God will do. He will step aside and second your motion. So if you're determined on your course of action, eventually God will say, okay, great, go ahead. And then we'll deal with the consequences that come from that. Um, And so here's the the last thing to say there on this. Don't be tempted to see the fulfillment of what you want as proof positive that God intended to give it to you. He may have given it to you precisely because he didn't want to give it to you. So I think sometimes you could say, gosh, I've been praying for this for so long. I've been desiring this thing for so long. And then you finally get it, and then it doesn't really work out the way that you thought it was. Well, maybe the reason God gave it to you is because you weren't listening to his voice as he tried to call you to something different. Now, here's the one caveat, caveat I want to give, is that if you're asking for something that you know is in line with God's will revealed in Scripture, then you know you're on firm grounding, that God's not going to, to not give you the things that you ask for, things like wisdom, things like um, salvation, right? Things that the Scripture tells us God desires to give us and delights to give us. But if you're asking for things like, God, I want... Um, you know, I want this job or I want this uh, new house or I want, uh, you know, this uh, different, this uh, difference in the relationship that I have with this person. If you're asking for God, I want more money or I want more of this thing or I want less of this thing. And you are asking for it and asking for it and you don't get it and eventually you do get it and it doesn't really give you the things that you thought it was going to. Well, that was exactly God's intention all along, was to show you that his way is far, far greater than anything that we cook up for ourselves. So. Any questions or comments or concerns or accusations of heresy? Yeah, Wayne. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, what this, and that's why I like this quote, that God will step aside and second your motion if you're determined to do something that's contrary to what he's telling you.